Hello, Cross Connection. It's Pastor Mark, and Pastor Miles has asked me to stand in and teach Nehemiah chapter 3, and so kind of excited. It's a great book and so many great lessons in it, both for us personally, but also as a nation, and so how those two uh, influence one another. So looking forward to going through that with you. And so um, as we do that, let's bow our heads and let's pray and let's ask the Lord to just share with us what he would. Father, we thank you so much for this story, this great story of your people. And Lord, um, a broken covenant that's going to be restored, Lord. And so uh, in the challenges and the things, the hurdles to overcome uh, as uh, your people uh, try to rebuild and to uh, restore back, get back into that spot, Lord, uh, where they're in obedience to you, uh, not just with physical building of the walls, Lord, but spiritually where their hearts are dedicated to you. So, Lord, may our hearts be dedicated to you this morning. Uh, Father, uh, teach us, lead us in the teaching of your word. So, last week, if we back up into chapter 2 a little bit, last week we saw that Nehemiah shows up on the scene. He's got the lumber trucks there, so to speak. He's got materials. He spies out the destruction in the city with this very small squad of guys uh, to kind of see really what the damage is. And I believe that his heart was just sobered, uh, broken to see the condition of this city uh, and its defenses and, and some of the homes, but also the condition of its people and what a broken covenant looks like. And it looks like despondency, despair, depression. Uh, the people are, uh, they have no joy, uh, so to speak, and they're looking for hope. They're looking to restore this covenant. Um, we're taught to, as we review some of the things we learned last week, um, how do we respond? And that's the lesson that we're going to learn this week is how do we respond to when we live in a nation uh, that is broken down, the walls are broken down, so to speak, uh, physically, a lot of the practical things, but spiritually. That's the real cause of this. And we know that this story in Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of a covenant more than anything else and of people working their way back to the Lord. And so uh, how do you and I respond, that's the lesson, to the challenges that are before us now uh, as we look at the condition of our nation, the spiritual and the physical condition of our nation. Uh, we learned last week that we are to have a sober mind. That means that we're to not be thinking under the influence of anything, whether that be, uh, obviously it says not to be drunken, but it's not, it's deeper than that. It's more important than that is not to be under the influence of a way of thinking that is ungodly. And so we learned about uh, what role politics should or shouldn't play in our lives as the rebuilding of a nation. And we learned that our hearts, we should use the same methods and think the same way that God does. And so that's a sober mind. We also know that our testimony, we learned last week, that the testimony of God's people should bring glory to God. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see reference being made, even by pagan cultures, to the God of the Hebrews. And so the God of the Hebrews is well known. He is an awesome God. Uh, he is an effective God. He is an all-powerful God. And so he commands respect even by those who do not follow him. We see that's his reputation and his people are to model that type of behavior, uh, that they are after God, that they want to be like God, that they want to obey God and be in covenant with God. His people are supposed to model that behavior. And so we see that the testimony of Nehemiah as he gives a testimony of what happened with a pagan king, basically financing and sending him on this operation uh, to restore a city 
that the king really had no part of, no history in, so to speak. And so uh, what a miracle that was. And then we also learn that the only thing it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that God wants us to be players. He wants us to be on the field. He wants us to be effective Christians and uh, not only just represent him, but re represent him in a, an effective way. We're actually on the field. He's not looking for fans. He's not looking for people to want to stay in the locker room, so to speak. Uh, he is calling us to action, to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Um, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 3, there's a few things that... Um, are kind of peculiar, a little bit different. Uh, one of them is, is that Nehemiah does not mention himself by name in there. So Nehemiah is not mentioned in there at all by name as far as being one of the builders. Uh, but he intentionally, there is a list of each family represented and it's represented by a name typically of a patriarch. And that name is given a certain task list and that there's a detailed description and it will say that such and such built this section. And so as he does that, it takes a departure from many other books in the Old Testament and that typically um, you would see if a city was conquered, they would say that David or King David conquered the city. If something was rebuilt, they would give the credit to the king. It wouldn't break it down into the individual people who would accomplish this task. So it's much different uh, than you'll see in other books of the Bible. Uh, I believe part of that, rather than just referencing a king, because in this instance it would be saying that King Artaxerxes built this, or perhaps saying even that Nehemiah built this, but the importance of this is, is I believe that we're being shown the importance and the power of just one person's relationship with God and how each person has to do a part in whatever it takes to rebuild the nation. And so uh, it's very detailed, it's very explicit uh, for those who really turned to the work and had joined the work. And we do learn that some of them did not. And so those are mentioned also. Uh, if I was to look at the overall theme, something that runs through in this book of seemingly this chapter, chapter three, a, a chapter that is mostly just the list of names and a few honorable mentions there, uh, it would be easy to miss some things. And one of the things that we could miss is that this chapter points out accountability, uh, spiritual and practical accountability. And accountability is given to each family to work on to rebuild this great city. And I believe that we have a certain amount of accountability ourselves with our families as we look and pray and want to rebuild our own nation spiritually and practically. Um, Another thing we notice that the task at hand, um, how it is framed, it is framed as a good work. Uh, that's Nehemiah's word. It is also framed as the Lord's work. So the attitude is that we get to participate in this, not we have to participate in this. So it is one of joy, it is one of purpose, and it is one of uh, a heart that wants to serve the Lord and serve the greater good of this community. And so with that, we're gonna start in Nehemiah chapter three. We'll start in verses one. It says, then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priest and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Haniel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. 
also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berachiah, I believe is how we say it, the son of uh, Mehezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Hmm. Point one on your outline. We are accountable to put God first in all things. One of the most important things we see here in the way that uh, Nehemiah has this broken down is he makes the point and the chapter starts out with the priest who are not builders or masons by, by trade, the, the priests are leading the charge to do this holy work, to do this work that is important to God. And they're approaching it with a God mindset. And so when it says after they did the work, they consecrated or dedicated the work to the Lord. So they did first things first. It was prayed for. Uh, the work was done with consideration uh, of how God wanted it done in the spirit of the Lord. And then when it was all done, uh, it was finished and it was consecrated or it was dedicated as the Lord's work and it being for the Lord. And that is super important for us to remember because we are accountable to put God first in all things into our lives. Um, in the book of Matthew, we read the parable of the talents. And there's some uncomfortable sayings that Jesus has in the book of Matthew, uh, particularly in chapter 25. And it's called the parable of the talents. And if we start in Matthew 25, verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then when he, he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained more also. But he who had received one went and dug into the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. 
but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not encouraging uh, if you're the guy who hid the talent. I think we have to be careful when we approach this um, scripture is that we want to approach it that Jesus is showing something here and it's not just the end result. Uh, he uses the phrase, enter into the joy of your Lord. And I think that's very important because what is this showing is, is that the investment from the first two servants, they were made with the expectation that they wanted to bring their Lord a prophet. And he was their Lord because they obeyed him. They loved him. They respected him. They were part of his kingdom, so to speak. And so when these two entered into this situation, and obviously this is a fictional story that um, it's a parable. Uh, but it's Jesus using a story that everybody would understand, something that could happen in his day or perhaps had happened. They had experience with it. But he's using this story to explain to people, to make them to understand of what it is like to uh, make a profit, so to speak. In this instance, they're using money, uh, uh, measurement of money uh, to make the point. Um, but it's really not money. It's just that's how people think, and so they think about this. He's using the measurement of, of basically what I've entrusted to you. So his words, his works, the testimony that the Lord has had in your life. What I've entrusted to you, what did you do with it? And as these two profitable servants um, did something with uh, what their Lord gave them, they were considered to be wise serpents, good servants, faithful servants. And so more was given to them to do. And so as we take this, we want to look at this and see how we bring this into our own lives. We are accountable, you and I, to make a profit for the kingdom, so to speak, to look at the work uh, that the Lord would give us, the opportunities and our gifts and our talents. Uh, we are responsible or accountable to use those we see in this chapter, it makes note of all those who did things and uh, how they did it, but it also makes a note of the nobles. And the nobles, these were not necessarily people of royalty. Uh, they're referred to nobles most likely because they're landowners or you know, uh, significant landowners, but they do represent maybe an upper class, so to speak. The challenge with the nobles was that they didn't know God. They weren't part of the building program because they didn't know how important this was to the nation and how important the restoration of the covenant was. And so they stood out as not participating in the work. Uh, it says the things that you really, really believe in are the things that you do. The things you do are what you know, so to speak. And it's no different than biblical concepts. Uh, the things we do are the things we believe. That's just the way it works in our lives. It fleshes out like that, so to speak. And so the nobles for them did not believe. And we're going to see that later on the nobles prove again uh, that they did not know the heart of God, uh, that they, not, not, they did not understand the task at hand, the mission, so to speak, uh, by how they handled themselves later uh, on in different chapters. Um, the last thing we learn in this is that our work is to be consecrated, uh, bathed in prayer, done unto the Lord, 
and then there's a certain amount of public testimony to our work where people see that the work is finished and we give the glory to God, we dedicate it to the Lord, uh, and that it is there and it is standing for all to see. We are in Nehemiah chapter 3 still, and we're going to go to verses 6. Start there. It says, Moreover, Jehoadadiah, the son of Pasha, and Meshulam, the son of Bodella, repaired the old gate. They laid its beam and hung its doors and its bolts and bars. And next to them, uh, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jaden, the Moronathite, We'll apologize for these pronunciations. The men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to them, Uzal, the son of Harnahiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Repahiah, son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumph, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malachijah, the son of Haram, and Hushbub, the son of Pathah, Moab, repaired another section, as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Now, this is significant, and we'll get to that. Point two on your outline, we are accountable to teach our children by example to follow God. Proverbs 22, 6, a verse most of us know, train up your child in the way he should go, or I can also say she should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. We know that part of the culture and the history of the Jewish people was that they would set up at times stones of remembrance. When God would do something miraculous, something special, they would make a pile of rocks or a pile of stones as a place of remembrance. And it says in Scripture that they did this so that your children's children would ask the question, what is this for? And they would be able to tell the story of how God did something that was miraculous, something that was special, something that came to the aid of His people most of the time, something that just something so amazing that they just couldn't think it up on their own. And it would be part of the very fabric, uh, the very just childhood uh, of their kids' lives. And so it was something they grew up with that would be ingrained in them from an early age. Those experiences are valuable. I remember, um, gosh, I was four or five years old and um, I grew up in a house that um, my father was gone much of the time. He was a commercial fisherman, but it was a great house. I can't complain because I had a great mom. And when my dad was home, he was home. And so we would go on adventures. And I remember being a small child and, and you know, I have to remember now, this is the, you know, late 60s, early 70s. But um, I always was fascinated with, you know, Indians. And we call them Native Americans now, but then you... They were, we called them Indians as kids, and we would watch movies with old westerns with Indians in them. And I remember as a kid just being fascinated by this and wondering if I could grow up to maybe be an Indian. And it seemed like a, a really good deal. There was bows and arrows, and you were camping all the time, and, and you had cool weapons. And, and it just seemed like a, I was just fascinated with 
Indians were just so cool as the way they were portrayed to me in the movies that I was watching. And we were going to take a trip to the desert. My dad took us out to the desert for the day to go see some things, I think, meet friends. And, and uh, he started to talk to me about uh, telling me stories about how the places we would go, that there were Indians there. And I was so excited and I was hoping I'd see some artifact or, or maybe meet a real Indian, you know. And, and as we were there, we were in a curio shop in kind of one of these junk shops on the side of the road. And I remember seeing a jar of genuine Indian arrowheads there up there. And I, I think they're a big like $2. I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but they weren't super expensive. But when you're a kid and you really don't have any cash in your pocket, uh, it might as well be a million dollars. And I had asked my dad about it and mom about getting me one of those. And they said, no, you know, you're, we're not going to do that. It says, but you know what? On the way home, I know a place where there's, there's, you know, it's Indian country and perhaps maybe we can find one on our own, you know? And uh, so I waited, you know, for the day and, or the in on the end of the day. And I was pretty excited about this. And sure enough, on the way home, we pulled off in a stretch of highway out in the middle of the desert somewhere. And, and my dad and I and mom, and we were there and I went out to go look for Indian arrowheads. And I was turning over rocks and out there in the hot sun and you're turning over rocks and there was sage everywhere and you know oh don't get bit by a rattlesnake and there was a certain amount of adventure to it and looking and looking and looking and, and no arrowhead and my dad would say you know go go look over there and I'd go look over there and there was nothing there and I'd look over here and 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 he goes, well, have you tried, you know, over here? And, and I'm over there. And he goes, no, you, you need to try a little harder. You need to try a little harder. And as I looked and I, I found it, a little piece of shale that was crafted into an Indian arrowhead. And I found my own very genuine artifact. And it was, I couldn't tell you today where that arrowhead was, but the search and the adventure of finding that arrowhead uh, on my own is an experience well more than 50 years later is stuck with me what do you learn by that well today I know that my dad and mom my, my dad was a good dad he was a good father and he knew that if he had just given me that arrowhead it would have sent one message but if I had to work for it if I had to search for it uh, if I got to experience the adventure of what it was like to watch out for rattlesnakes and to turn over rocks and um, to go around the bushes and to maybe have the, the thought that we weren't going to find anything. And then suddenly at his direction to find that arrowhead, that thing that I've been looking for. What my dad taught me by that was is that it's, it's about the journey it's about the discovery. It's about that dependency on the Father to experience that. And sometimes God wants us to participate in the hard work and the adventure of what it is to achieve this thing that we really, really want. Many times this thing that's really, really close to God's heart. In short, again, God is looking for us to be players, not fans. He's looking for us to do these things. So the patriarchs are there, and it mentions, if you notice, the son of, the son of, the son of, and even the daughters, which was kind of a little bit out of step with things. You didn't hear a lot about the daughters. And so 
Uh, the daughters typically wouldn't be the ones working in the fields or, or rather building walls and things like that. But that's what happened here. And so the children of these patriarchs, the sons and daughters, are working alongside their fathers, the heads of their households. And I'm sure their whole family was there. They probably didn't break everything down, but they're watching their dad lead them. They're watching the head of their house, the person they look to for so many life lessons, to lead them and do the hard work of the wall, to do the quality work of the wall. And they're looking at the attitude that they're having when they're doing this. And so the patriarchs knew that the next generation would be the ones that would be living in this city, that would be continuing to build things and continuing um, to prosper in all those things and that they would need the hard work as a life lesson, the discovery of this hard work. Uh, they would need that to carry them through, uh, to have the proper training, the proper attitude, the mind and heart attitude that they needed to follow the Lord. It was so much more meaningful to them when the wall was discussed because they took part on it. They were ready for the challenge. Being part of God's work and uh, it's referred to here as good work or the Lord's work. Uh, sometimes it's hard work. It teaches us something. It teaches us the appreciation for God and his miracles and his leading. I think of Peter uh, being a fisherman and uh, Jesus asked him to push out in that boat just one more time after a night of no fishing and frustration and no fish in the nets and frustration. And, um, he does it in faith. Uh, I don't know what Peter's expectation was, but when Jesus tells him to put down his nets and, and Peter maybe even argues a little bit, it appears there and says, we fished all night and have caught nothing. And he says, lower down your nets. And as he lowers down the nets and they have a, a catch of fish that none of the fishermen have ever seen before, it is so bountiful, it is so heavy. Uh, there has to be this feeling of surprise and joy and reward as it was as Peter followed the Lord and all those around him who saw this catch of fish. So much so that the spiritual point is proven that Jesus wants him to no longer catch fish, but to catch men. And so God allows these miraculous things to happen. Sometimes after a lot of our own hard personal work, he does that uh, to give us an appreciation for the miracles and the greatness of who God is, and it becomes a testimony. Nehemiah 3.13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors and its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuge gate. Malachajah, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Bek Harachem, repaired the refuge gate. He built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom, the son of Kolhoza, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall uh, of the pool of uh, Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Now, as we go down here to verse 23, it shows him as it leads into all the people that participated and everything that everybody did, we get down to verse 23 and we get a little hint here by somebody's name. It says, after him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azirah, the son of Masaiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. Benjamin, the name literally means 
son of my right hand or my protector. And so as we look at point three, we are accountable to honor our parents. That's what this is about. This, this name means uh, the son of my right hand. So he would be the protector for the dad. He would be the, the son that uh, was dependent on, uh, many times probably the oldest son in this, but he would be the son that was dependent on uh, to take care of his father. Exodus 20, 12 says, honor your mother, or excuse me, honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. I think if we were to look out today in our country and are we to say that it's going well with us or long with us, we would be here long. Um, I, I think the answer would most likely be no. And as we look at how do we respond to some of the disarray and the wickedness and the fact that so much of our nation has lost its way, so to speak. I believe this is one of the principles here that God has shown us that we are accountable for. We are spiritually accountable uh, to honor our parents. It's the first commandment that has a blessing attached to it. And I think our nation has missed out on that blessing in so many instances. Now, I know there's some of you will say that I have a uh, a mother or a father that's not worthy of honor. They've been cruel to me or they've abandoned me or they've um, done wicked things to me. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that us parents uh, need to treat children, uh, our children, as that they're a gift from the Lord, which is what he says they are. And so we can make mistakes in those areas. But for those of us who know our parents and have our parents, parents, it, even in their imperfect, we still have a call to honor them. Now, sometimes if you have a parent that's very difficult to honor, you have to honor them at a distance, uh, to keep them from sinning against you. And I understand that. I've seen that situation before. But too much of what I see uh, spiritually is that people discard people who are older. One of the most valuable ministries that we have here at the church at Cross Connection is before COVID, we were in seven different um, assisted care. Uh, back when I was a kid, we called them old folks homes. Uh, we don't call them that anymore. Um, but assisted care facilities where people go that need more help. But some of the people in there um, never get a visit. Um, they never uh, have that much contact with the outside world with their families as though of, as they've been forgotten. And so we try to furnish, uh, our volunteer staff furnishes a, a valuable ministry there to lead those people in uh, Bible studies and in singing and just spending time with them. If we're to bring ourselves back into a place of blessing, we have to turn that kind of cultural tide uh, to be a, a culture, um, a nation, that honors its older people, our mothers and fathers in the Lord. Uh, I believe part of the reason that we are not, uh, it's not going well with us in the land, so to speak, is that too many times we tend to discard uh, those. The family unit has had an assault on it for a very, very long time. Uh, it's heartbreaking to hear these stories and to see how these go from generation to generation. And one thing I think that we forget as a culture that was not lost on the Hebrew culture was the fact that they thought of things from generation to generation to generation. There was a long-term thought on this. 
it's not fun. It's hard work uh, sometimes to love somebody that maybe uh, an elderly parent that maybe doesn't remember you or uh, inconvenient. Maybe they're they're crabby or uh, they're tired or they require a lot of uh, medical care or attention. And a lot of times that love that we put into that um, is not reciprocated. It is a selfless thing. It's a sacrificial thing. Uh, I remember when my dad was very, very sick and having to assist my mom who just faithfully served him and took care of him uh, as he was sick for years. And I remember it gotten to the point where he was needing help showering and just doing some of the basic bathroom needs and things like that. And I remember my first, it was a graphic experience with that uh, to be there for my dad. And I remember walking away from that first experience, uh, leaving their home and walking out into the driveway and looking up and, and um, just kind of having a conversation with the Lord saying, you know, gosh, that was not great. That was weird. That, I didn't like that. That made me uncomfortable. And I'm not a guy who says the Lord speaks to him all the time. I'm just not one of those people. But I will say this, the Lord gave me a very strong inclination and a very quick uh, rebuke to that action and that thought. And that thought was that um, to serve my father was an honor and that it should be done with joy. And that's hard. Um, easier perhaps for some of us because we've had great experiences, but it's still a, it is a very hard thing uh, and can be a very hard thing, particularly when it's uh, something that is drawn out. And so I just encourage you that when you serve your parents and you honor your parents, that you honor the Lord because he's asked that of us. So as we go to Nehemiah uh, chapter 3, and as we um, start to wind up here, uh, we'll start in, let's see, verse 24 again. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Isaiah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Uh, Palau, the son of Uzziah, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Bediah, the son of Perosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethium, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the palace of the water gate towards the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section. The Tekoites were on fire. These guys are quite the builders. Um, and so they repaired this other section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Offal. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own home, an important point. And then after them, Zadok, the son of Imer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shenaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. The name Zadok, uh, and he, as he appears in here, means justice or integrity. And just so happens they have him having justice, uh, Mr. Justice and Mr. Integrity are doing the repairs in front of his own home, uh, right what is in front of him. Point four on your outline, we are accountable to have integrity and justice in our personal lives. How will we rebuild a nation? How should we react to a fallen nation? We need to react to it 
by having lives that reflect justice and integrity, very, very important in our testimony. One of the places that uh, I think is a great place of misunderstanding is the institution, the God-given institution of marriage, uh, the covenant relationship that is unique in marriage. And many of the misunderstandings that happen in marriage is that we think that marriage is to make us whole or to make us happy, uh, to bring us joy, that, it, that somehow God's going to bring us this person that's going to complete us and and uh, we're going to be excited about this the entire time that the, we're not going to waver. We found this one person we're compatible with. And that's a, that's a misunderstanding. Uh, it's not necessarily true. Uh, yes, we can be fulfilled and we can have joy and we should have joy in our marriages. But the purpose of marriage uh, is, is twofold. Um, it's not to make us happy, but the purpose of marriage was to make us holy. And as we become holier, the other purpose of marriage is to draw us into a place where we look at our relationship with God. And it is a place where we serve and we forgive and we do so many of the things that God does, uh, we have to do in our own marriage. We learn those lessons of forgiveness and patience, those hard lessons to share with the rest of the world. We learn those lessons in the covenant of marriage. Um, the lack of integrity in our families, and particularly in our marriages uh, that we are experiencing in this nation, uh, I think it is leading to the cause of much of the downfall of what you and I are experiencing now uh, in the nation. Uh, the wrong thinking, uh, the discard of people, uh, a people that are bent on uh, entertainment and happiness, uh, or their happiness, so to speak. Marriage is that institution where your relationship with the Lord uh, comes out uh, in a good way and in a bad way. And people around us see that, our integrity in that, and how we are in our families, that comes out in that institution of marriage. One of the new terms out there is we see people, we call them social justice warriors, and they're people who find a social cause of the month or whatever it is, and um, somehow um, everybody else is bad, and, and um, they typically want to hold other people accountable for something that is wrong in society. And uh, there's a very good chance that the, the problem they're describing is something that is wrong in society. And it's something that has a godly solution, a godly answer, so to speak. And we are to be the people to bring that across. But what seems to happen in these um, people, these social justice warrior way of thinking is that they never seem to preach personal accountability or responsibility. That never seems to come out as a solution uh, to whatever problem that is put out there. And um, that's counterproductive. Um, they always seem to put that on others. Why are we talking about that? Well, one of the key things as we see this book of Nehemiah and the way he described the situation, he used we and he used us. Uh, he included himself as part of the problem but in the spirit of he was not going to make other people accountable for it. He was accountable first to fix this 
problem with the covenant, with the rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem. And so the facts are in our nation that families that have a mom and a dad uh, as, the, as a house, a two-parent family, so to speak, they have with kids, it shows that there's a, a sociologist that shows that um, their children do better in life, period, uh, that they're more confident. Uh, they go on to more successful lives. Uh, that doesn't mean just because you have a mom and a dad that that's going to happen. But statistically, uh, we know, the studies show that that's what makes for a successful family uh, and a family where they can repeat that success. And many times it happens generation to generation. And uh, those are the facts. The fiction that is put out there is that it doesn't matter if you follow God, if you have integrity, uh, if you um, do not seek justice. The fiction out there says that it's just some great in uh, injustice that can be fixed some other way, uh, perhaps by money or by a law or by politics. And it's just simply not the truth. And as we know, the city of uh, Jerusalem did not get rebuilt. Those walls did not get rebuilt. Uh, it wasn't money and it wasn't politics. Uh, it wasn't somebody else's problem. It was their problem, our problem. So as we close, the Christian church, the big church, the church here for our nation, um, the Christian church in our nation, the one that puts God first in all things and consecrates their work. They pray, uh, they dedicate it to the Lord. They have joy in the work of the Lord. The Christian church that teaches their children, uh, not by lip service, but by example, where the parents are physically doing those hard things, lifting those rocks, so to speak, and setting those examples. Um, the Christian church that, uh, where we protect and we honor our parents um, to receive that blessing that goes along with that, that it would go along with us or well with us in the land. And those people in the Christian church, uh, a Christian church that has integrity and seeks justice, that is the church that God wants to use, the hope that we reflect to a nation that has rubble and has fallen uh, both physically and spiritually. Um, that is the church that God can use. And I invite you today along with me uh, to be part of that church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. A very direct word uh, today, um, a very sobering word, Lord, uh, today, as we look at um, our accountability. And it's so easy to think because we are under grace that we have no accountability, but we know that that would be a mistake. And so, Lord, as we joyfully uh, take on the good work or the Lord's work, Lord, empower us. Um, may those rocks seem a little lighter, Lord. Uh, may our children be watching us and, and uh, derive the lessons that they need to learn in that. And Lord, in short, be with us and by your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you. And I pray you have an adventure-filled week of the Lord's work, his good work, and that um, you feel and see and sense his presence in the work of the Lord. God bless you.